Amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, as we were worshiping just a minute ago, I just uh, the Lord just recalled back to my, my memory. You know, when we, when we first started off this whole series of Nehemiah, if you remember, Nehemiah had prayed. He saw a need to rebuild the wall. And he began to pray. But if you remember, man, he didn't just stop with that. Remember, he began to prepare. He, he, he just like got planning, that planning mode, and he began to think about what he was going to do when he, when he got the permission for, for him to go to Jerusalem. And it made me remember back several months ago, we saw a need back there to clean out that, the baptism room back there, and we remodeled it. And the cool thing about that was we're, we've been praying for people to, to get saved and get baptized, and then we had people that didn't even go to this church donate things back there. And not only that, there were people that didn't go to this church that spent like 12 hours back there painting, putting down new carpet, all that stuff. And the reason why I'm telling you this, 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 it was this, not only just this prayer, but we were planning for it. See, that's what you got to do. It's great to pray. We need to be praying. Yeah, but I'm telling you what, in the meantime, while you're waiting on God, you need to, you need to put stuff in action. You need to start doing some stuff. What I'm saying is you anticipate it happening. And so all the way this year, man, God has blessed us. We saw Micah get baptized and now Darren. And it's just an amazing thing. Let's give God a hand. Awesome. Well, my name is Donald. If you're here for the first time this morning, I just want to thank you for coming. And I, if I didn't have a chance to meet you before the service, man, I'd love to meet you after the service. But be sure to go on your way out and get a gift. We'd love to give you something to just show you how much we appreciate you popping in with us this morning. And also, just a couple of announcements. Wednesday night, War Room, man, we're back to praying in here on Wednesday night, 6.30. We meet. We have a, a list down here that we pray over. We pray over uh, you know, our individual prayer requests, but then we do a little short devotion, and then we get down to the business of praying for the needs of this church, just like what I was talking about earlier, man, we're praying for more people to be baptized, but we're praying for all aspects of this church. When I want to encourage you, please come and be a part of that 630 Wednesday. It's going to be great. Also, there's two ways to give. You can give in person at the box back there on the wall, or you can go to our website online and give there, and I would encourage you to do that. Well, man, here we are, Labor Day weekend. Can you believe it? September already. I know when I turn my calendar in my office, I, I'm kind of old school. I like a calendar. I like looking at stuff, you know. And I, I said, I can't, Stephanie and I were saying, I can't believe it's already September. And, and even make it even better, man, college football started. It was just great, man. It's watching some college games yesterday. You know what I loved about that? Did anybody watch any games yesterday? Anybody? Did you notice how packed it was? Like some people are starving to get out there. Last year, you, you couldn't hardly go to a game. And, man, all you could see on TV yesterday was just people just getting out and enjoying that. And so we're continuing this morning in our resurgence series. And we're going through the book of Nehemiah. And this morning, we're going to be in chapter 10. So uh, if you would, just go ahead and bow your heads and let's, let's uh, go to God in a word of prayer. Father, again, Lord, is. His Wesley pray, we're grateful to see the, the waters of baptism being stirred this morning, Lord. And we're grateful for what you're doing and what you're, you're going to do, Father. But Lord, this morning, my prayer is just simply, God, that you would fill our hearts with a fresh and a new desire to serve you, to worship you, Father God. So, Lord, I pray, God, you would take your word and implant it in our lives, God. I pray also that you would fill me with your spirit, God, and I would just speak forth for what you would have me to say, Father. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that it has to change our lives, God. So, Lord, help us this morning, God. Help us to see ways that we can begin to apply the truths and the principles in your word to our everyday life. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Again, we're in chapter 10, and uh, the title for today's message is A Covenant for Resurgence. A Covenant for resurgence. And men, you know, it would be really easy sometimes to read a book like Nehemiah and you get to certain chapters and you, you know, you, you really don't understand what's going on there, you know, and you kind of get bogged down and, and you just kind of, you know, try to survive, get through it. And maybe the next chapter will be a little bit better. And we probably all experienced that before as we read our Bibles. And, but I wanted to this morning, you know, and chapter 10 could be one of those chapters too, if you're just reading it on the surface. So I wanted to start off with a verse this morning 
that tells us that all, not just some of scriptures, not just a few passages here, but all, the whole of scripture is applicable to our lives and is valuable for us today. 2 Timothy 3.16, man, this is a verse that Baptists, when we hang our hat on this verse right here, it says, all scripture, repeat that with me. All scripture, yes, breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so as we made our, our way to chapter 10 today, we're going to see how this passage today, how it teaches us. It's gonna, we're going to see how it admonishes us. We're going to see how it corrects us and how it will train us to walk in the ways of the Lord and reflect the love of God. So if you remember a few weeks back in chapter 8, we saw, remember Ezra, he stood up and he read the Word of God and all those people, man, they stood for like four hours hearing the Word of God. That was the teaching part of, of 2 Timothy 3.16 that we just read. And remember chapter 9, it kind of, it, it, well, it's not kind of, it actually lines up with 2 Timothy 3.16 also because remember they were praying and they were confessing, but so that kind of falls into the admonishment part of 2 Timothy 3.16. And so if you remember last week in chapter 9, it was the longest prayer in the Bible. It's just this long prayer of repentance. And they started off remembering what God had done for them. And God had delivered them from 400 years of bondage in Egypt. And then God had provided all the way through their journey as men as they meandered for 40 years through the wilderness. God had provided for every step of the way. And then their prayer it, that they were confessing about the sins of their father, then it turns into their own individual confessing, their own sins. And so that's what chapter 9 was all about. We saw it a you know, week before last. It was about repentance. It was about a resurgence in their hearts. It was about you know, turning their lives and living their life of worship to God. So in verse 38 of chapter 9, that's where we left off last week. We're going to look at that this morning. We're going to start there. And we're going to see how, how verse 38 of chapter 9, we're going to see how it lines up with the correction part of 2 Timothy 3.16 today. And we're also going to read uh, to verse 10, uh, chapter, or, or verse 10, and, uh, verse 1 there. I'm, I'll get it out in a minute. Chapter 10, verse 1, okay? So look at 9.38. It says, because of all this, in other words, Everything that I've just talked about, everything that they were praying, they were praying to God, asking God forgiveness because of everything that they were repenting from. It says, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So I want to start off this morning with a, uh, with a question. I'll ask you guys a question, and um, I'm going to throw a question out there, and I want you guys to give me the answer. So one of the synonyms... For the word covenant is the word commitment. Commitment. When you hear that word commitment, when you think of the very concept of that word commitment, what comes to your mind? Go ahead and raise your hand, I'll call on you. What comes to your mind when you hear that word commitment? Come on, don't leave me hanging. No wavering. I like that. Yeah, no wavering. What up, Darren? Yeah. There's another one, man. You guys are doing good. What, what else? Come on. Come on, don't be shy. Just raise your hand. Steph? I think of dedication, like marriage. Like. Okay. Dedication, like it in marriage. Yeah, we're going to get into that this morning. <laughs> what else? Somebody give me one more. Come on. What do you think of when, when you think of the very concept of the word commitment? What comes to your mind? I'm sorry? That's, okay, so you guys are doing great. Those are great answers, and those are some of the things that I thought of when I was thinking into that. And maybe it's just me, but, man, it just seems like, I don't know, these days, it seems like we live, we now live in a time where commitment, it just doesn't carry the same meaning, the same weight as it did years ago. It just doesn't seem to have, I guess, the word duty is what I'm looking for as it once did for believers. And maybe it's just me, but I think the proof of that is all around us. I mean, just like Stephanie was talking about in marriages, you know, just look at our, our marriages today in the church, even, in, even among Christians, the divorce rate is the same as the world. One out of every two people will get a divorce within the first 10 years of the marriage. That's the latest statistics. And that's astonishing. 
Anytime that I ever uh, enter into premarital counseling, every session that I meet with a couple, I will make sure I reemphasize and reiterate that you are getting ready to enter into a covenant with God. You're entering into a covenant not only between each other as husband and wife, but you're also entering into a covenant with a holy God that you're, you're doing this in front of the witnesses of your family and friends, but you are getting ready to enter into a covenant with a holy and righteous God. And man, we need to be thinking about that. That's how serious the commitment of marriage actually is. So commitment should be a big deal to us as Christians and you know, like when we do baby dedications at church, sometimes people will come down there, dedicate their child to, to raise them up in the ways of the Lord. And, and so that's a big commitment. And we as the church family, we need to support them in that. We need to lovingly support them in that and even hold them accountable because that's a big commitment there. And to be honest, you know, sometimes personally, I find myself reneging on my commitment to the Lord. You ever found yourself doing that? I mean, sometimes, man, you know, I just find myself reneging like and I'll come up to somebody or maybe one of my neighbors and I know they don't know the Lord. And all of a sudden that little voice starts tugging inside of me, saying, you, you need to go for it. And sometimes I don't do that. And I don't really know why. It's just sometimes I, I don't. So sometimes I find myself doing that. But man, the thing is, we like the Savior part. We always confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and we love that, that, that fire insurance part, right? You know, that Savior part. But man, that Lord, well, that's a whole different thing right there. And it's easy to stand up here and preach Jesus to you, quite honestly. I love doing it. It's easy to do that inside the four walls of this building. And it's easier for us to stand up and sing songs about Jesus. Well, what about out there? Man, it, it's easy to do those things. And here's the thing, guys. Commitments, I think they're easy to make. But it's in the follow-through. It's where the difficulty lies. And that's what we saw in chapter 9. Time and time again, they had confessed God. And time and time again, they would turn their backs on Him. They had made these commitments so many times before. And time and time again, the Israelites had they made some pretty hard, firm commitments to the Lord because he had delivered them from 400 years of bondage. But then again, time and time again, we see through the scriptures how they reneged on that commitment to put God first place in their lives and obey his laws. But here in chapter 9 of what we saw the week before last, we saw how this prayer of confession begins to turn into a prayer of repentance. And again, as I told you last time, that confession and repentance they're completely two different things. Confession is acknowledging to God that, hey, I've sinned, Lord. But repentance is actually turning away from it and going the opposite direction. So they're completely two different things. And so they make a covenant here. I want to go back to chapter 9, verse 38, just for a second here. And again, read through verse 1 of chapter 10. Nehemiah 9, 38 says, Because... Of all this, we make a covenant in writing. And on the sealed documents were the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Verse 1 of chapter 10. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah. So here we see they're beginning to make a correction of their past sins. And, and the leaders, man, they're putting it in writing. They're not playing around. And so they were doing this so if ever needed, they could go back in time and say, hey, guys, right here it is. This is what the Word of God. We put it in writing. We put our seal on it. Remember, we made this commitment here. They had this thing that they could refer back to. And so here it is in writing, and we have it in the Word of God. They all made a covenant, and every single one of them agreed to it. And then from verses 2 to 27 in our text today in chapter 10, we see the rest of 86 leaders who are putting their seal in. And I'm not going to read all these names because, quite honestly, I couldn't pronounce half of them. Me trying to pronounce some of these names in that passage would be like tying my shoelaces together and trying to run down that aisle. I might get a little further, but I'm sure later, man, I'm going down, okay? So I'm not even going to try to pronounce all these names. But, but look how, well, let's pick back up in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 10. This is so good right here. 
And the rest of the people, the priest, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated, everybody say separated. Separated. separated themselves from the people of the lands of, to the law of their God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding. Verse 29. They join with their brothers their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. So what we're seeing here is that they are willingly entering into this covenant. And and it starts off, if you notice, with all these leaders. There's 86 of them in verse 1, which is an awesome Awesome example of leadership, I might add. I mean, these guys were literally putting themselves on record here. And their seal was back then was like their signature. They all had these signet rings, you know, with their certain uh, uh, kind of like a logo thing in there. And they would just that hot wax, they would seal the, the documents with and they would press that into the wax. It would, they were putting themselves on record as they signed that. So lifted, listed in the scripture here, all these thousands of years later, we, we have them. All 86 of them on record here. And the first one we see is good old Nehemiah. Did you notice that? Man, he's been the relentless leader the whole time. He, he left ancient Babylon, got the permission from King Artaxerxes to, to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. But it doesn't stop there. The wall is just kind of like a springboard to catapult them into a whole different type of resurgence, man. And that was their hearts returning back to God. And then we see all the Levites, the priests, and the other leaders of the people, like the nobles and, and men, they were all unified. Last week, I was glad to hear when you, when you guys voted to bring uh, uh, Jared on as a pastor, you're, I heard you're all unified in there. Man, that's a beautiful thing. It's not a very common thing, but it's an awesome thing when you see the church become unified. Man, yeah, we're all on board with this. But this is a great example of leadership, setting the examples of what it looks like to obey God. And it would be easy for us to sit here and think, well, that's what the leaders in the church are supposed to do. Yeah, they're, they're supposed to do that. But I would say that all, every single one of you in this building today, all of you are leaders in some respects. I mean, because you, we're supposed to lead and demonstrate what it looks like to follow Jesus. Amen? What it, just to be committed, what it looks like to be faithful. Some of you are leaders at where you work. But even if you're not a leader at where you work, not, if, maybe if you're not a supervisor or a manager, man, you're still a leader in the sense that you are supposed to set the examples for your fellow employees to be faithful, to be on time, to do a good job, to work hard, to do, even go over and beyond. When you demonstrate those types of character to people, man, you're leading others by setting an example, especially an example of what it means to be a Christian, to be faithful, steadfast, and committed. Some of you are even leaders here in the church. But man, all of us should be leaders in the sense that we're setting examples of faithfulness. But as believers, we all need to be people of influence. Now think about that for just a moment. You're supposed to be people of influence. I mean, and ask yourself right now, are you having an influence on those around you, not just in the church, but where you work, where you live. Are you having an influence, an impact on people's lives? I mean, I certainly hope so. But if you're not, then there's something about you that needs to change, quite honestly. And here today, we see that's where they were at in life. We see they were willing to make a change in their life in chapter 10, and thousands of years later, man, here we have their names recorded in Scripture. Man, these are the guys that committed to make this change, and all the people were in agreement to it. They made this public, bold commitment to God. That's the reason why we baptize. That's the reason why Darren got baptized this morning. He was wanting to make that commitment to you publicly. But not only are we to make uh, that commitment publicly going in the waters of baptism, but as you go in your everyday walk in life. That's making a commitment right there. As Baptists, we don't don't baptize infants, but we do baby dedications. And again, that's when we will, the parents will come down here and they'll dedicate that child to the Lord. 
But man, we all need to continue in our personal commitment to Jesus. And that's what we see going on here. Men, it's almost commonplace in the church today to think that it's the leader's responsibility to carry out the commitment and the work of the ministry in the church. But I want to tell you what, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says otherwise. Let's check it out. It says, and he gave the apostles, this is Jesus giving the gifts to the church. He gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Why did he do that? Verse 12 gives the answer. It says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So it's not just the pastors, it's not just the elders, the, the deacons, the small group leaders. It's not just them. And no, it's all of us. It's all of us to make that commitment to Christ and proclaim him. And here in our text today, man, we're going to see the leaders, man. They're stepping up. They're being bold in their commitment. But also, here's what I really want you to see this day. We see the people. The people are stepping up. That's what's going on in verse 28. And the rest of the people, man, they did the same thing that the leaders were doing. Let's look at verse 28. It says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. And so we see this idea of the separation from the world, and they're turning to God. They were surrounded by all these different people groups in Jerusalem at this time. I mean, these were some idolatrous people here. They were into all kinds of stuff, man. These were some sinful people who had no desire for God for whatsoever. And today, it's no different today. I mean, today we're, we're surrounded by the same thing. We're surrounded by people who are involved in all kinds of things. You know, they're idolatrous. They're self-centered, arrogant, proud, boastful. Man, that's what's all around us, anywhere you go. But God calls us to be separated from that. He calls us to be holy, to set apart for himself. We're supposed to be set apart from drunkenness, from, from you know, pornography, from pride, from arrogance, from materialism. We're supposed to be separated from all of those things. Man, we're called to look different, people. Not just on Sunday, but we're called to look different. But these people here in chapter 10, man, they were stepping up. They didn't rely on their leaders. I mean, they followed them, absolutely. They were definitely following them. But I don't think they were depending on them. I think they were committed individually. They were stepping up. I mean, it wasn't this thing to where, well, that's the leaders. That's their job. They're supposed to. Let them step up. Let them go for it, right? I mean, it would be really easy to sit in a pew for 25 years and make an excuse that, well, I don't know my Bible well enough. It's just me. I don't know. It's not my personality. It's not my giftedness. That's not what we see here. It says in verse 29 that they joined with their brothers, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to what? What do, they, what do they do this for? To walk in God's law that was given to Moses, the servant of God, to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. So you, you just have to think through this passage for a second. I mean, if we were to all, all observe the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, I mean, if just half of us were to do that, I'm telling you, we'd be running two and three services in this building. If just half of us would. Think about that. You know, and what I really mean by that is, man, if we were really to obey Jesus' command to go, to go and tell, tell the good news of the gospel, see people get saved, See people get baptized, then disciple them, disciple them to go out and do the same thing. Then probably about a year and a half from now, we might be having a conversation to build a, another building in this empty field right there. It's just half of us. I'm telling you, it would happen. But see, that's what we see going on here as individuals. The rest of the people, they were willing to commit to obey what God had said. And so they make this covenant. 
Next we see the makeup of this covenant starting in verse 30. In fact, this would, this would be a great place for us to all stand right now as we read the Word of God. Let's go ahead and stand and let's read the last 10 verses in this chapter. Starting in verse 30, it says, We will not, everybody say we will not. We will not, we will not give our daughters to the people of the lands or take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring in any goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take ourselves on the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel to the service of the house of God for the showbread, the regular grain offering, and the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel in all the work of the house of our God. Verse 34. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of our Lord as is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Verse 36. Also to bring to the house of our God the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to bring the firstborn of our dough and of our contributions and the fruit of the tree and the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of God, and to bring the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithes of the tithes of, to the house of our God to the chambers of the storehouse for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil into the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are and as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. Look at this last sentence in there. This is so important. We could hang the rest of our time today on this one sentence. We will not neglect the house of our God. Thank you. You may be seated. Man, there's a lot going on here if you, if you, if you notice. So I want to break it down a little bit. In verse 29, just going back to that, the first thing we see is they commit to obey God's word. And now here's what's really important for us to know this morning. We don't get to decide what rules to follow. I know we try to do that sometimes. But that's what God does. God decides what rules we are to follow. Man, this is one of the biggest problems among God's people. Man, we want to make up our own rights and wrongs sometimes, do we not? You know, at my former church, I had a couple one time uh, contact me for marriage counseling. And I, I had them fill out a form and I asked them a bunch of questions, just kind of get an idea of what's going on in their marriage. And when they turned the form back in, I noticed something that they had two different last names. So I had to call him. So I know she had two different last names here. So I, are you guys married? And she goes, no. <laughs> I'm going, well, you're asking me for marriage counseling. I'm not, I'm not, she, and then she said, just this really stunned me. She goes, well, in our eyes, we are married. And I'm, but in God's eyes, you're not. And that's the whole problem right there. And sometimes, man, we will justify these rights and wrongs in our minds. So, I just, it's one of the things that just, every now and then you, you, you know, you encounter in, in ministry and you're just like, wow, really? But, but I've had couples even contact me about baby dedication. And I look at the forms and all of a sudden I'm seeing, <laughs> there's two different last names. What's going on? It's all I have to call them back. I said, you know, I noticed you guys are, uh, have two different last names. Are you married? And they go, no. And the way they answer is like, this is no big deal, you know? And I go, well, you're wanting to do baby dedication. I said, we're not going to be able to do that if you're not married. And they're like, well, why not? 
And I said, well, because you're not married. I said, how can you, how can you dedicate your child to raise him up in the way of the Lord if you yourself is, are living in habitual sin? And when I said that, she says, you know what? I never really thought of it like that. And I said, well, let me ask you, what is it? I mean, obviously you guys love each other. You, you had two children together. I mean, that's a big commitment right there. So what's stopping you from making the commitment to get married? She said, we can't afford it. She says, every time we, we get a little bit ahead, we plan to do, have our wedding, you know, something happens. And, and, and so we've never been able to afford a wedding. I said, well, I can solve that. <laughs> I said, man, you go down to the courthouse, get your marriage license. I'll pay for it, $97.50. Bring that back to me, and I'll marry you right here. And y'all will just get two witnesses, and we'll just do this thing right here. And they did. You know, I actually ended up marrying quite a few couples by that right there. But isn't it just interesting that you think you can dedicate a child when you yourself are living in this attitude of habitual sin? And my point is, it's easy to fall in this trap of making things to be right in our minds. And man, we will make some stuff up just to justify the sin in our life. But it's God that decides the right from wrong. It's not us. He and He alone sets the standards. And he's given us his word so that we can live by it. It just simply boils down to a choice, guys. We're either going to obey or we're going to disobey. And that's what we see going on in our text today. Man, they're making this covenant. They are making this hard, firm commitment of what they will not do and what they will do. Based on what God had already said that's the word, that's what it does for us, man. He allows us to, when we look into his word, when we digest his word, he allows it to take root in our life and it becomes the authority in our life. And you, you guys have all heard me say this before. I don't think it'd be said enough. Your view of God will determine what you will do. Your view of God will determine what you will not do. Your view of God will determine what you say, how you act. It will determine what you allow your eyes to see on a computer screen. Your view of God will determine the quality of your marriage. So a person could actually view God in either one of two ways. You're either going to have a distorted view of God or you have a biblical view of God. You see, that's why I read to you right at the very beginning, 2 Timothy 3.16, that teaches that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training into righteousness. Because a right view of God will determine everything about you. So let's define the difference between the two views of God. And I want to put this on the screen this morning for you. I think this is so important. A distorted view of God causes the basis for our behavior to be subjective, where we follow the desires of our flesh and then we justify the way we live. And that's so true, man. We're, we're all guilty of that at some point in time. Well, you know, we'll find ourselves doing something and we'll conjure up all these reads in our head. Well, it's just not that bad, you know. But then look at a biblical view of God. This is so different. It leads us to separate ourselves from the desires of our sinful flesh and allow God's word to determine what is right or wrong. These people right here, man, they were serious about what was right and what was wrong. They were going back to the word of God. They make this covenant. They're so serious about it, man. They're putting it in writing. They're putting their seals on it. So in verse 29, we see that how committed they were to walk in God's law. Let's go back to it. It says, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all. Everybody say all. All the commandments of our, the Lord, our Lord, and his rule and his statutes. You see what they're doing here? They're allowing a biblical view of God to take root in their lives. They're allowing an accurate biblical 
view of God to determine what they will not do and what they will do. And then they add this curse thing. Did you see that? Man, that's so intense right there. Let's try and personalize that for a second. Man, they add this curse. That would be like us going, God, if I do that again, (laughs) take my job. Lord, if I do that again, take my house. Lord, if if I even come close to doing that again, just go ahead and take my health. Take my kid. That's how intense this was. They they literally are putting this in there. It's just so intense to me. And then the question, would we be willing to do that? But that's how serious they were. Yeah, like, go ahead, God, curse us. If If we renege on this deal here, just go ahead and curse us. You know, and I'm not trying, none of us are perfect, right? I mean, I know I'm not. Just ask my wife, you know, she'll tell you, no, I'm definitely not perfect. Just follow me around through the week, and you'll tell me, that dude's about as jacked up as it gets. And none of us are perfect, and I'm certainly not implying that. Of course we're not. I mean, we're going to mess up here and there. But, man, aren't you glad for God's mercy? For his grace? Aren't you glad for his forgiveness? Aren't you glad this morning that he allows for repentance? I know I am on a daily basis. I mean, I I, I just thank God that he set it up like that. It doesn't mean that it's okay to sin. We don't use that as a license to sin, but we need to commit not to give into our lusts and our prideful actions. I mean, no one here is probably going to go out after church and steal a car. No one here is probably going to go out and knock off a convenience store after church. But what about all those thoughts that enter our minds sometimes on a daily basis? What about our attitudes sometimes, man? When we say something just utterly stupid, and we know, we know it's wrong and hurtful, but yet we say it anyway. And Paul talked about this. Remember in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about, he goes, I don't understand it. We're talking about the Apostle Paul here. He goes, why is it that the things that I know to do that are good and right, I find myself not doing those things? And then he says, and the things that that I don't want to do, I know I'm not, but he said, that's what I find myself doing. So he was like, there's this big mystery going on here. There's this war that goes on inside of our flesh. I mean, I get concerned sometimes when I see people when they get saved and after some time, maybe a year or two or whatever, they, they claim the Savior part, but that Lord part, not so much. Because submitting to Him as Lord, I mean, that comes with some hard choices sometimes. When I got saved, little by little, it cost me something. I saw all my old friends, the childhood friends that I grew up with, I saw them just kind of just dissipate one by one because, you know, the old Donald, he, he wasn't the same guy. He wasn't the same, you know, party guy all the time, the fun guy to hang around. He wasn't that guy anymore. I didn't want to do those same things. Like, little by little, man, they just kind of faded off out of my life. I didn't want that. I wanted to be around them, and sometimes I were around them. But, man, I, Donald had changed. That old guy had died. Surely wasn't perfect, man, but it was just something about me that had changed on the inside. And so it tells us that salvation is free, but following Jesus is going to cost you something sometimes. And we all need to know and be reminded that when we get saved, Jesus Christ becomes not only our Savior, but he also becomes our Lord. And he puts his Holy Spirit inside of us to guide us, to let us know, hey, man, we don't need to go there. That little still small voice that knocks on our heart's door, man, we need to pay attention for that, man. That's just one of the biggest compliments in the world that you have the Holy Spirit trying to guide you and help you. That's what he does, man. He puts his Spirit inside of us. But the next thing we see is just how specific these people are getting ready to be in their commitment to the Lord. These people knew exactly 
what God's word had said. Remember back in chapter 8, remember Ezra stood up and he read the word of God and they all stood up for like four hours. They stood to their feet and listened to the word of God being read. Man, they were hearing it. Some of them were hearing it for the very first time because you got to remember a lot of these were born in captivity in Babylon. And when they came back to Jerusalem, a lot of them probably never had even heard the word of God preached like that before. But now they begin to know what God's word says. And isn't it really interesting that sometimes you can be reading the Word of God and all of a sudden, man, something just convicts you in your heart. You go, man, I'm so sorry. See, that's what's going on here. They had heard the Word of God preached in chapter 8. It convicted their hearts. And if you remember what happened in chapter 9, they began, they started to mourn and they began to pray, oh Lord, they confessed all the sins of their fathers and they get to this place where they're confessing their sins individually. That's what the Word of God did to them. And so we're not going to have time to go into a lot of detail in these next 10 verses, but I want to look at a few of these details. Look at verse 30. It says, We will not give our daughters to the people of the lands or take their daughters for our sons. See, God had told them in the past in, in Mosaic law, don't, you're not, don't intermarry. And the reason why God had set that rule for them because God wanted a, a certain, the, the Israelites, he set them aside for his own people. And this is through which the Messiah one day would come. So he wanted them to be separate from everybody else. And every time they disobeyed God and they intermarried, do you know what happened? All of a sudden they began to take on the pagan worship of those people and they started worshiping false gods and doing all kind of crazy stuff and not only that but man, they, they were engaged in some pretty twisted stuff here and there if you read back in the Old Testament but the same thing holds true for us today in the New Testament it speaks of being joined together you know in marriage we're not supposed to be joined with unbelievers in marriage it's called being unequally yoked you were not even supposed to be joined unequally yoked even in business there's a danger in that look what paul said in second corinthians 6 14 he says do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness and some of the worst situations that I'd ever personally been in in marriage counseling has been because of this. An unbeliever married a believer. And, they, and the idea is, oh, well, you know, you think you can convert them. And so many times it turns the other way around. They end up dragging the believer down. It's just some of the toughest stuff I've ever had to counsel through. And the reason why is because they have two completely different views of God. One has a distorted view of God. One has a biblical view of God. And sooner or later, man, these things begin to clash. Their views on morality and right and wrong. And, and even when they have kids, man, there's a whole other thing there, a whole new conflict because one wants to raise their kids this way and the other one wants to raise their kids God way. And so there becomes this conflict. And you know what else? I'll, I personally don't think that a Florida Gator should ever marry a Florida State Seminole. <laughs> That's just messed up, man. That's just not going to work. But the next thing we see in our text today is that they were committed that, that they would obey and keep the Sabbath. Verse 31, And all the people of the land bring in goods and any grain on the Sabbath day to sell. We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. See, in the past, they had broken this Sabbath law time and time again over the years. I mean, the Sabbath was one of the biggies, right? It was, one of the, it was number four on the Ten Commandments. It was a big deal. They weren't supposed to break it. But now they were recommitting to the Sabbath here. They were like, you know, if someone comes up in here on the Sabbath day and say, hey, man, I got a great deal on apples. It's a BOGO. They're like, no way, man. I don't want anything to do with it. Hey, a side of beef for a shekel? Man, what a deal. <laughs> no way, man. I, I, can't, I can't quite go that. And then, so as we move into the New Testament, the Sabbath was not repeated or reiterated. A lot of people think that it was, but it, but it wasn't. And what happened was because when Jesus was resurrected on Sunday, Sunday became, they referred to as the day of the Lord. So now we worship Jesus on Sunday. But the principle, my point is, the principle is still the same here. 
Meaning we are to set aside Sunday. We are to be faithful in that. We set aside Sunday for a day of worship and rest. Hence the proverbial Sunday nap after we eat on Sunday. I'm just going to get into that myself today. But some people will say that Sunday is now the Sabbath, but that's not true. Nowhere in the New Testament can anybody point out to where Jesus or anybody else reiterated the Sabbath in the New Testament. But Sunday is the Lord's day. But here, they had also committed to what God had also said the seventh year. God had told them, you're not planting anything on the seventh year. You go, well, that's kind of weird. How are they going to eat? See, God was doing that because he wanted on that seventh year. He did that so that the land would replenish itself with all the nutrients back in the soil. But also, for a whole entire year, he wanted his people to depend on him. That was the biggest thing about it. God was teaching them to depend on the Lord for their provisions. It also talks about every depth. Every seventh year, they were forgiven their debtors. And every 50th year was a year of jubilee in which, you know, they forgive all debt. How cool would that be? Every 50 years, man, you get to hit the reset button. No house payment, no credit card payment, no nothing, man. You're just, you're just scot-free. You don't have anything. See, that's why they were putting these practices, these, these, not only the traditions, but man, they were putting these laws of God back into practice. If, even if you had entered into slavery or servitude, you were free from that debt. And then in their covenant talks about a bunch of other things that they were committed to and practice again, like they gave support to the temple, which today would be the church. In verse 32, and then they would do this through the temple tax and they would tithe and bring the first fruits of their crops and the fruit trees, verse 35 tells us. And then they would bring this as an offering to the Lord. In verse 36, they would bring their firstborn child. Now, that's, this is not, uh, you know, like they're not sacrificing their child here. This, was, this is the law that, that God had put. And they, what there was is that their firstborn child, whether it was male or female, during the first month of, of their life, they would bring them to the priests and they would pay five shekels. It was this idea of redemption, of what one day would come that Jesus Christ would redeem us. And so they reinstitute that one. And then verse 37, they gave tithes of wine and oil. And this is all a way to provide for the, the temple workers, the priests and the Levites as servants. Man, it was, it was just a way for all of them to trust God. They now knew what God's word had said. And they willingly committed to it. And it, it's the same for us today, guys. It's just another form of worship to give to the work of the church, the work of the Lord. Does it not also create, when we give to the church, does it not create a dependency on God to supply? He only asks a portion. But it creates this dependency on Lord to supply our need. And so many believers struggle with giving. And here's the truth of the matter. Giving is, only, is either going to be a wall or it's going to be a bridge to believers. It's going to be a bridge to some believers because they understand, man, it, it, it increases their faith in God. It increases their dependency on God, and they trust God. But some people, it's like a wall that you just can't get over. Man, I just uh, I, I only make so much, and my bills are this, so I, I just I don't see how that works. It never becomes that bridge to faith to them. But you know what's interesting to me? Giving always seems to be this thing that the testimony of a giver is always, I'm blessed. You ever notice that? Every giving testimony I've ever heard, they always say, man, I give to the Lord. I don't worry about it. And I'm so blessed because of it. But you know what the testimony of the ones that never give is? I can't afford to. <laughs> think, just got to think through that. I'm blessed or I can't afford to. That should motivate us right there, man. Sometimes, yeah, it's not going to make sense. So we just trust the Lord, and it, it just becomes that big old bridge that leads us to a greater faith and a greater relationship with God as we trust Him. And for us today, guys, as we wrap this up, we need to know what God's Word says. They had heard Ezra preached. They begin to know what God's Word says and we need to be specific in our understanding and our application of Scripture and not vague because they were being pinpoint specific in this covenant. And so that's the question for all of us this morning. 
Do you know the word of God well enough to obey it? And don't allow yourself or put yourself in a position to where you have to be spoon-fed every Sunday. Because see, you're accountable for what you know and what you believe. I'm not accountable for you. I'm accountable for what I say and what I preach from this book, yes. But you're accountable. One day you will stand before the Lord and you will give an account for what you did with the gospel, all the gifts and the abilities and the talent that God gave you, you will stand and give an account for that one day. And, and, and no, none of us are perfect, absolutely. But man, it is our responsibility. And do we know enough of the word of God to obey it? I'm gonna go ahead and call the worship team back up. And Wesley, if you just wanna come up by yourself, that's fine. And I wanna close it out with our last verse in our text today. Verse 39, it says, For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contributions of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. Look at those last, those next three words. And we will not neglect the house of our God. See, they knew exactly what God's word had said and they were willing to make a covenant and they were willing to put their seal on that covenant. They were willing to abide by it and not neglect the house of the God. Might we be mindful of that today? Maybe we be thinking about that through the week and either commit or recommit, Lord, help me to obey your word. Give me a fire and a desire for your word. God, give me understanding of your word. And would you be willing to do that this week and commit that to the Lord? Maybe you're here this morning, man, that you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well, I'm going to be right down here. There's nothing more I would love to do than introduce you to my Savior this morning. If you have any something that we, I need to pray, I can pray for you. I'd be happy to do that this morning. But I want to invite you to do that and maybe take this time to ask God to help you to commit or recommit this morning.